This morning, we're going to be in uh, Revelation, picking up in chapter 19, verse 11. We're going to cover the remainder of the chapter. But if you remember, the, the title of the whole study through Revelation is The Time is Near. And amazingly enough, the time is nearer today than when we first started. And if we make it till tomorrow, the time will be nearer still, even then. If you don't believe me, I mean, I just say, read the, read the news. Don't listen to the news, but read the news. That should be pretty obvious. But we remember that John, the Apostle John, was on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus was real, revealed in glory in heaven to him. We saw the letters of seven churches, the end of the world, as we know it, the great tribulations. Uh, cities, climate of the earth is destroyed, uh, not by man, but by God. Judgment on the nations and those who follow Satan. And we remember that it's very clear in this time who they're following. They make no bones about it. They know what they're doing. Like I shared last week about the satanic wedding of someone at work. Like, it's clear what they're doing. Uh, but again, it's a last-ditch effort of the world to repent. That God wants the world to repent. That the, the goal of all this is that people will wake up and realize that they need to turn to God. And not that God is demanding worship, but that God knows what's their end to them if they don't choose him. Um, we saw the past, present, and future revealed. We're even going to see in the next couple of chapters the future, future revealed. Like we have future and time. But what comes after time? What comes after the tribulation will be revealed to us? We saw the end, the church, heaven, ultimately Jesus revealed. We talked about last week that, man, when we come to the scriptures, what should be revealed to us? should be Jesus. It shouldn't be some law to follow, some rule to obey, some extra personal righteousness. But really, the ultimate end goal of any scripture, even in something tough like Leviticus, should be Jesus revealed to us. Um, like we said, we saw the future revealed, what's coming after this universe. But previously, we saw a world in allegiance with a world leader. Uh, they took a mark. Uh, they must worship him. If you remember back in Genesis, or not Genesis, but in around Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar is ruling, he builds a giant idol. The musicians go around and play, and everyone must bow down and worship this idol or be cast into the fire. And they say, whether God saves us or not, it doesn't matter. We know God loves us, and we're not going to worship you. Uh, but just, you know, that was a type of things to come. But that's going to be required in the end times as well. And it's interesting just how the, you know, music industry and all these things play together in our modern world to serve the world's purpose. Uh, but we saw many judgments, many plagues, many disasters, war, famine, death, that this tribulation period is an awful time. And today we're going to see that tribulation period basically come to a close. That the end of the seven years is upon us today in chapter 19. If we remember that this is on a, a just judgment that's coming on a sexually and spiritually and financially corrupt and immoral world system. That you know the world system we're in now is bad, but trust me, Jesus is coming and he's going to deal with it. We saw last time that Babylon was destroyed. There were songs in heaven. There was an invite to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and yet we didn't see a supper. We didn't see a feast. And the feast that we see today is going to be a little bit different even there. But remember that he alone is worthy. That that's who they're worshiping. You know, as we're singing that last song during worship, I'm thinking about, man, how does anyone worship the Antichrist this time? God is worthy. Just having that sense of his worth and worship and thinking about people actually worshiping like that towards anybody else on earth. But as we get started, let's pray together. And God says... Uh, that his word is good. And Lord, we do agree that your word is good and that it's true. And Lord, we want it to have its effect in its way in us this morning. 
So God, by your Spirit, come and speak it. It's your word. You speak it. Whatever you want to say and do in us and through us, God, and to those around us, God, we want to be on board with that. And so, God, we ask that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this morning's message is Heaven Opened. Heaven Opened. Like I said, this is a moment, in a sense, that we've been waiting for. That we've been reading all of Revelation, although there's still a couple of chapters left. This is it. The judgments have come, and Jesus is coming back, and this is it. This isn't quite the end. This isn't the moment exactly I'm waiting for, personally. But sincerely, it is the moment that the world has been longing for uh, when Jesus comes back and, and begins to set things right. He's been destroying things, and we know that when God destroys things and removes things from our lives, it's always to put something better in its place. The enemy likes to destroy, but God loves to rebuild and make it better. Uh, and for sure, this is the moment the tribulation saints, the martyrs of the tribulation, have been waiting for. And let's read uh, 11 through 16 together, and then we'll dig into it. John says, I saw heaven open, verse 11, and there was a white horse. He who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but he himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him out on white horses. Out of his mouth proceeds a sharp sword with which he may strike the nations. He shall rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in these uh, few verses here before we dig into the rest of it. But if you remember, John is, in a sense, as he's seeing this, he sees heaven to open. So I believe he's seeing it from somewhat of an earthly perspective, right? We saw him on earth see the kingdom of the Babylon fall. And now he sees heaven opened. Heaven opened. And we should consider that for a moment. Because if heaven is being opened, what, what can we infer from that? That heaven, in a sense, hasn't been opened. Heaven has been closed. There's been no way into heaven for us on our own. As we as believers know, the way into heaven is through Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door. But why? Why has heaven been closed? If we're in the end of the Bible, I think we should go back and look at the very beginning of the Bible, and it gives us an answer why heaven was closed. If we remember the garden in creation, that Adam and Eve, before the fall, what did they do? They walked with God. They'd go about their day, they'd pick some fruit, they'd hang out, they'd enjoy life, enjoy being in God's wonderful garden. And the cool of the day, when uh, it would cool off, God would come down and walk with them in the garden, talk with them. They would see him face to face. They would hear his voice. They would spend time with him just like you and I would. That There was, there was no, no separation between them. There was nothing keeping them from spending time with God directly like you and I would, having that great and true fellowship. But what happened? Well, we remember that they sinned, right? God said, do whatever you want in the garden, but don't eat from this one tree. Uh, you know, we all think of it as an apple. I don't know if it was an apple or whatever it was. But they ate from it. And that act separated them from God. I don't know that the apple itself was poison, but God said, just don't eat from this one. I have to give you free will. Don't exercise it. <laughs> exercise that free will in obedience, not in disobedience. Because people think that free will is, is, is robotic. It's not. Free will 
Jesus had free will and he freely chose to obey God. Free will is not a punishment, it is a blessing. Especially when we exercise it for good. But in any event, they sinned. God made, they made a covering from themselves out of leaves that wasn't enough. God killed animals and covered them with animal skins. There had to be a sacrifice. God cast them out of the garden. And what did he do? He set angels with flaming swords to guard the garden. That they could not go back into the garden. They could not go back into that wonderful place and spend time with him anymore. But it wasn't because God was necessarily mad. I mean, it was upsetting to him, right? It was sin. But God kicked them out because he didn't want them eating from that other tree, the tree of life. He knew that if they went in and they ate from that other tree, the pear or orange, whatever it was, that they would be forever stuck in their sin. And God does not desire that. God wanted to make sure that, hey, this sin thing was done. I'm going to deal with it. I need to get you out of it. But the only way to get you out of it is to keep you out of the garden for now. That I made this place for you. It's wonderful, but you can't come in in the way you're in now. We have to deal with that sin thing first before I can let you back in. And in fact, I'm going to make a better Eden, a better garden, a better place, if that's possible. I mean, not like God made something that was mediocre. But I think you know where I'm going with that. I think you understand what the Scripture is teaching about. Because God didn't want them to be eternally stuck in sin. It's one thing to be stuck in sin for 80, 90 years. It's one thing, but not eternity. And there's an interesting thought exercise if you listen to Chuck Missler and you think about dimensions and the way science looks at our own reality and the way certain things are broken, how that could have been broken then. And I won't get into it, but I love it. It's, it's a great thought exercise. But if we continue in Genesis, we see the Tower of Babel. In a sense, man said, we want to go back. We want to reach God. We want to reach heaven in our own strength, in our own spiritual enlightenment. We want to exalt ourselves as God up to heaven. And I think about modern space travel. I think about modern cities with skyscrapers. And I don't think that God has anything really against the Empire State Building or has anything against SpaceX and their rockets, so to speak. Uh, I think it's probably fine and great that we have uh, the knowledge and the ability to do this. God has given us talents to do these things and the desire to explore. But I wonder what the heart behind some of it is. Is the heart behind some of it not to show yourself great on earth? You know, to build the tallest size skyscraper in the world, to say that you're the greatest country, the greatest builder, the most wealthy czar or whatever. Is it not to say, our world is dying. We need to get to heaven. We need to get off earth and go to heaven. We need to go to the stars. We need to go to the moon. We need to go to Mars for our salvation. Right? Is that not the heart behind some of it? But don't you think if the world scientifically believed heaven was real, would they not try and get in? Would they not be in a lab somewhere trying to create a portal and open a door and go to heaven if they really believed it? And I think in a sense they are. I think in a sense when you look at certain areas of science that are playing God, such as gain of function research, uh, people exploring psychedelic drugs, trying to be enlightened and talk to beings from other worlds, are they not trying to open that portal to heaven, that portal that was closed at the fall? And again, seeking artificial intelligence to reach knowledge that's too great for us, something that we can never attain on our own, something that a supercomputer can break down in a second, it would take us 100,000 years to do, right? Are we not trying to go beyond these borders that God has purposely closed off for us? Uh, and I'll stop there because that, be, that would be a fun journey for me, but that's not where we're at this morning. The tabernacle, the temple, further on in uh, you know, the Pentateuch, uh, the veil between earth worship and God's presence. When they'd go in, they'd, go, they'd wash the bronze laver outside, they'd come into the holy place, 
and they'd have the showbread and the menorah, but they could only go into the Holy of Holies one time a year on the Day of Atonement. There was behind a veil and only the high priest could go in. And even then they'd put a rope on his ankle because if he died in his God's presence because of the sin of the people or his own sin, they'd have to pull him out. They could not go in there or they would die as well. That getting into God's presence required sacrifice, required death. And if you weren't worthy, boom, you'd be vaporized basically. And that's what the Bible talks about God, right? But God is gracious enough. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to make a law and make a temple and make a shadow of things to come, like he said. He could have done whatever he wanted, but what he wanted to do was still to meet with us. And despite us not being able to go in his presence because of sin, he made a way for us to get there until the sacrifice of Jesus came. And when Jesus did come, he revealed the Father. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Again, God is trying to reveal himself to a world that has rebelled against him, to a world that is sinful, to a world that can't get into heaven. So if we can't get into heaven, what does God do? God comes to us. We see the cross. Jesus revealed our true need for him, the depth of his love for us. That he wasn't just going to sacrifice an animal. It wasn't just going to be a system of sacrifice, but that he was going to give his own son for us that we might gain access again. Like that veil was torn in the temple from top to bottom, it says, when that earthquake happened. And God, I believe, ripped that and said, I don't want any separation anymore. And now we live in this age of grace where we are able to receive the Holy Spirit that the world was not able to receive before. God would put his spirit on David, put his spirit on Samson. His spirit was on Saul for a time. And David said, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. That God would be on people, and if they were not following him, he would depart from them. But God didn't want it to be that way. And so God has made his Holy Spirit and his presence available to everyone, that we can come into the throne room of grace at any time we want to now, when we couldn't before. So God has already been opening heaven, right? We see the rapture. Uh, the pillars of creation are being destroyed by God on earth. Um, like I said before, it's not because we're driving too many SUVs. It's God is going to destroy the earth. He's going to destroy the climate. Uh, and it's because of our sin and our rejection of him is why it's going to happen. But now we see in Revelation, heaven is open. And what do we see when heaven opens? Is it rainbows? Is it flowers? Is it wonderful things as heaven begins to reveal a portal onto earth? No. We see another rider. We see a rider coming to do what? To make war. And I believe, in some sense, this is why God delayed opening heaven. God could open heaven when Adam and Eve sinned and wage war and wiped out the whole thing and said, forget this whole thing, I'm done with it. But I wonder... Do we really want him to come back at this moment? Would we really want heaven to be opened right now? As believers, I think, yes, yeah, absolutely. That'd be fantastic. The world would be judged, sin would be over with, we can go to heaven. And I think in some sense, that's the right heart. We should long for Jesus to come back and to rule and reign in righteousness. But in the same sense, what about the people who we love, who don't know Jesus? What about the people even maybe we hate who don't know Jesus? If we know Jesus, even if they hate us and maybe we don't like them or maybe we even struggle with hating them. Do we really want them to face what we know is coming? What we believe the Bible says? God gave people time to repent. God didn't open heaven in the full righteousness and the full open door say, okay, it's time for heaven to be open. Time for there not to be a separation between earth and heaven before. We saw that spiritual walls be broken down during the seven years of tribulation and now it's finally being opened up. Because if heaven truly opened up back to earth, it would be a war with earth 
that Earth could never win. And we're going to see that. I love it. It's, it's like, it's almost comical how easy it is for heaven to win. And if you just look at all these comic book movies that I just can't get into, a lot of them talk, have this plot that's overused ad nauseum about a portal in heaven opening up and creatures coming in and coming down to the whole world uniting to fight against it. And of course the creatures are evil and it's a bad guy, right, coming through this portal. But I think it's kind of interesting how in the end times these are the plots that people are most interested in. A portal to heaven, creatures coming through, and the whole world uniting to fight him. Hmm, I wonder where that idea comes from. They didn't come up with it on their own. But this rider is Jesus. He's on a white horse, right? And my son Jacob got it right. They, there's no white crayon, and they're probably okay. Just leave it in blank. But do you remember the four horsemen in Revelation chapter 6? I'm sure you do, because you guys are all great Bible scholars. But the first rider was one on a white horse. So wait a minute. There was a white horse in Revelation 6. There's a white horse now. Well, the first rider was who? We know it to be the Antichrist. We know it to be the one who the Antichrist is not necessarily against. It means, I mean, he is, but the word itself means instead of. That he came in the place of Jesus, that he imitated Jesus. He came on a white horse because he knows Jesus is coming on a white horse, so to speak. He claimed to be of peace. But he was of war, and he went out conquered, and he controlled the world, and he brought tyranny to the world like we've never seen before. And thankfully, as the believers, we won't be here for that. But that doesn't mean, as a side note, that it's not going to get awful while we're here. It's awful for people in China. It's awful for people in North Korea. It's awful for people in Nazi Germany. Why do we think that it might not get awful for us? Why do we think, oh, the rapture's coming, it'll be fine, we don't have to worry about it? I, I beg to differ. But Jesus... It says that his name is called, the writer is called, faithful and true. And this isn't just an attribute. This isn't just an adjective for Jesus. I believe he is these things. He is faithful. He's the embodiment of faithfulness. He is true. He is the great I am. If you look at these words real quick, just to do a word study, the word uh, faithful is trusty, faithful. You have your trusty steed, right? But it's of persons who show themselves faithful in transactions of business, the execution of commands, was Jesus not obedient to death, or the discharge of official duties, is he not the, the image of the invisible God? One who is not the Son doing the work of the Father? Uh, one who kept his plighted faith worthy of trust that can be relied on? Can we not rely on this man, on this God-man? And true, that which is not only the name and resemblance, but the real nature. That this is not just the name of something true, that this is true. That of all truth, of all prophecy, it's speaking of this one being, Jesus Christ, the faithful and the true. But I like the part of this definition. It says, it's opposite to what is fictitious, counterfeit, imaginary, simulated, or pretended. And it's not this white uh, rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, not the opposite of what is fictitious in Revelation 6, counterfeit in Re Revelation 6, imaginary, simulated, or pretended. It's not our world. It says in contrast realities with their semblances. It's not our world all about making up its own reality these days. And is it not a lie? Is it not false? And Jesus is opposite to that because he is truth, the embodiment of truth, and he himself and his being is all the things that are true. But it says that in righteousness, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In righteousness, he comes and says, it's okay, everyone's all right, live how you want. No, he judges and makes war. And if God is declaring war 
a God of mercy, a God of peace, of kindness, of grace. You know that He's doing it because there's no other way. Because it must be done. God doesn't declare war lightly. He doesn't declare war just because He's angry one day. He doesn't declare war when someone rips Him off, right? It was Satan who declared war on God. God had to fight back. But what a contrast to when we wage war a lot of the time in this world. Personally, someone slights you they, or you want something. Like James says, why do you rage in wars? Because you want things and you ask and you don't have. A lot of times an excuse to do what we want. We want to take over this part of the world. Let's just go and do it. And that's been throughout all of history. And you talk about people wanting reparations and payback. And well, I mean, Poland's asking for money from Germany for World War II. I'm like, you kind of had 80 years to sort this out. Like, why now, right? But sincerely, we'd all be paying each other back for all of, e- all of eternity because war has existed since the very beginning, Cain and Abel. But even World War II, we, yes, we stopped Hitler. Yes, we freed the Jews, which is a wonderful thing. Yes, God used it to make Israel a nation again in one day. But I think we really got into it because we had to. We had no other choice. Pearl Harbor was bombed. We might have even let that happen. Hitler was taking over Europe, and we said, we're next. We have to go now. We could World War II was raging for years before he got involved. And yet, God still used it. But I think that, you know, it's interesting. Now, when God rages war, it's righteous. When we do, it's not always this case. But it says that he has eyes like flames of fire. And, and we remember, John saw talking with him, this man. Eyes like flames of fire walking between the lampstands. That's, I mean, if we really think about this, this is a scary picture. Imagine just all of a sudden, some sort of portal ripped open in heaven. You know, there night, like the moon was kind of obscured by smoke and clouds. And I was like, what is that glowing thing up there? And I was like, oh, it's just the moon. But I got a little like, like what's going on? You know, like, is there a rocket going off or something? But imagine that. And out comes this rider. And he's got names written on him. His eyes are like a flaming fire. As we're going to see, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. This should be frightening. Even as a believer, you've got to go, okay. Sorry, God. And be sobered by it. And think that, man, God is good. And he's Jesus. And he's the gardener. Right? And he was tender with those he loved. But at the same time, he's no joke. He's not someone to be messed around with. And it says that he's got many crowns on him. They didn't just wear one crown. He isn't just, you know, I'm going to watch F1 later, I hope. And they get a trophy at the end. And the only guy in first place gets a trophy. But he's got many crowns because he's won every race for all eternity. Uh, in fact, he's the king of kings. He's beaten all the kings, and he's going to prove it here. He's the firstborn over creation. And looking to the commentary, they mention, I don't know how I forgot, my flesh, the crown of thorns. That Jesus has many crowns. And he's coming to be in victory here. And what I like, and I think we need to look at for a second here, is that he has a name written that no one knows but him. He's got other names on him. Faith, he's called Faithful and True. It says King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his outfit. But there are things about God that only God knows. Sometimes for us, that's the why in life. Why did this happen, God? Why did you take this person from me? Why has this thing happened to me? Why is the sky blue? I don't know what these questions are we might have for God. But sometimes we never get those answers. And God alone knows those answers. He knows the whys in life. But while we know God and we are known by him, and, and in this day, the veil will be removed. There won't be, uh, we won't be seeing through a glass darkly, like Paul says, like tinted glass. We'll see clearly, we'll known as we're known. 
in some sense, I still think, based on this, we're never going to fully know God. All eternity, we're going to know more and more and more about Him. But there's always a part of God that's, in a sense, too much for us to handle. At least in this life, maybe in the next life. But at least from Earth's perspective, at least from John's perspective, looking up. Because how could we ever possibly think we'd be able to totally understand God? And I think that's the problem with a lot of people's arguments against God is they think they can totally wrap their head around the whole situation. I'm, I'm like, I'm sorry, you can't. No matter how hard you try. Because if we could, would he be an omnipotent, omniscient God? They say, well, is there ever a rock that's too big for God to pick up? Well, no, God doesn't have a rock. He's spirit, right? He made rock, right? Like the argument is false. But it says that this person with flaming eyes, riding on a horse with names that only he knows, is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. So if this picture didn't get any more scarier, he comes riding out with the robe. I don't know if it's dipped just the, at the bottom and it looks pretty. I'm picturing it's soaked in blood, it's dripping, it's legit. Do you remember the robe they put on him before the cross by the Romans? They put on a purple robe for him. A Roman purple robe meant royalty, you know, royal purple. Uh, but his robe is bloody, and it's red, and it's purple. That's a sign of government. That's a sign of royalty. And where does he get that authority? Well, he's God, but the blood. And I just think we need to behold that sight for a minute, to think about that for a minute. And they say his name is the Word of God. We look at John 1, who says, God spoke. That his words do have power. They do have meaning. You know, people try to speak things into existence and name it and claim it, brother. No, no, no. Our words have a little bit of power. We can hurt each other with them. We can make deals with them that can affect us in court just by our words, right? It affects who we are if we say one thing and do another. But when God speaks, all creation listens. When God speaks, all creation comes into being. And Jesus himself is that word of God. Uh, and he's not just God's voice speaking to us. He is that embodiment. Like he's the embodiment of truth and faithfulness. He is God's word. That God's word is more than just on a page. It's more than just a sound. It is a person. It is Jesus. And he's powerful. But we see he comes with all the armies that were in heaven. I think it's great. He comes riding out. He's got a sword coming out of his mouth. And all these armies follow him. And these armies are the saints. Those we saw earlier, Revelation 4, potentially this is us riding with him. But it, uh, Enoch even talks about it uh, in Jude. He says, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Enoch, if you remember, was uh, before Noah. He was one of Noah's friends and family, and he went to heaven before the flood. And I think it's interesting that God gave him prophecy about this. And I like how Enoch says ungodly over and over. I think Enoch had this awareness of the difference between godly and ungodly. Uh, but he, he says this, that they come to um, convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds. And is that not part of our role as the church, right? Holy Spirit should convict and exhort and draw people to Jesus, right? Uh, righteousness and judgment. But as the church, should we not be that witness of God's army on earth? Not coming to slay them and judge them and kill them. 
because they don't have swords here. They're dressed in fine linen. But in a sense to say, these things are wrong. These things are right. You should be convinced of it because the king is coming. Is that not our role as God's army in some sense? And I always thought, you know, that it's funny that uh, as we see here, we'll see Jesus comes back and he's got his army with him. The army doesn't really do anything. The army just kind of rides behind him as Jesus goes, ah, and the sword comes out of his mouth and devours everybody. The army's just kind of like, yeah, riding behind him, right? That it's really him and him alone that brings this judgment. And I don't know, I always think kind of when I was little, I used to mow the lawn with my plastic lawnmower with my dad while he really mowed. I wasn't doing anything, but I was fun and I was out there with him and having a good time. Um, and I think that's kind of like this, right? They don't, you know, they don't really do anything other than Jesus says, hey, like these guys had the authority while they were on earth and you rejected them and they're here to be with me, to rule and reign with me and take part with me in executing this judgment on the world. Uh, but it says that he will rule them with an iron scepter. And that comes from Psalm 2. For time, we won't read it. But I encourage you to read all of Psalm 2. It's not that long. And it talks about this. But if you remember, communism in the 80s, in the 70s and 60s, there was the Iron Curtain. There was no getting through that. Germany was split in half. Europe was split over to the right. Part of why Russia is taking you. Russia and Ukraine, right? Like, Ukraine's not part of Europe. Ukraine was part of Russia. And that's a whole other story. But he's trying to take some of that back. Some of what was behind this Iron Curtain. And communism ruled by force. It ruled by tyranny. And we're starting to see a lot of that pop up around the world. The, the, the Iron Curtain fell, but I think communism escaped. And it's taken over the free world. But I say that because Jesus is going to rule them with an iron scepter. Iron, a symbol of judgment and power and authority and unflinching, and it's there. Right? We see the ten toes and the miry clay in Daniel's vision, right? And iron. But when he comes back, he's going to rule for a thousand years, as we'll see in the next chapter, if he doesn't come back before then. Uh, but his rule with this iron scepter means it's going to be absolute. That Jesus is going to sit as king on earth for a thousand years. And there's not going to be any contest to his throne. There's not going to be any bickering among the governors because the tribulation saints are going to become those governors and they're going to help rule the world in a sense there. That people, I believe, you know, based on things I've read and, and just what the scripture says, that in some sense, and, and don't take this as gospel truth, I feel like there's not going to be that exercise of free will during this iron scepter rule. That there was free will in the garden and they chose wrongly they could have chose they chose rightly for how many minutes it took them before they walked to the tree right but i believe that in this time there's not going to be that that people are going to be under god's rule for this a thousand years it's going to be a good rule it's going to be a great time it's going to be a peaceful time it's going to be the best time the earth has ever seen but they're not going to have a choice to say you know what i don't like this government let me bring in another government they're going to have to go along with it that god is not going to force them to change their hearts but he is going to force them to live a righteous life, right? That there's going to be a lot, everyone out there is going to be living a righteous life, but not everyone is going to be in love with God during this time. And I don't know how, I, I don't know how that works, but it does. Because you would think that if you saw Jesus reigning on earth and it was wonderful, you would at least begin to fall in love with him over a thousand years. You know, they talk about what is it, Stockholm syndrome when you fall in love with your captor, right? Like people, oh, you know, they fall in love with them because they're captive by them. They, they lose sight of reality. But God, again, doesn't force that heart change. He doesn't force anybody to worship him. And what an opposite that is to the system we see in place for the seven years before this thousand-year reign. They force worship. You don't take the mark. You can't buy or sell. You don't worship. We're going to kill you. You worship God. We're going to kill you, right? But he's really going to show what the utopia was really supposed to be. He's going to say, you guys wanted a great reset. 
Well, let me really reset everything for you guys and show you what it's all, all going to be like. Because again, remember these tribulation martyrs, they're going to be governors and rule. I don't know how that works, like down to taxes and things, you know, I don't know what, how that works, probably tithe or something. Uh, but I have to wonder, is it not maybe an agrarian society? The world had been destroyed. Infrastructure was down. They're starting at square one in a sense. Uh, you know, but a thousand years is a long time, right? Uh, maybe they will never think they ever need anything more than cows and milk and wagons. Who knows? Uh, but I wonder what kind of innovation could happen during this time. And this is just me thinking because it's fun. But what innovation would come out of that? Because the Bible says, come here to me. The Bible says uh, that uh, it's in Proverbs, but it talks about all these inventions coming out of man, you know, because man doesn't want to deal with reality. Man does you know, we don't like it being hot, so we make air conditioner because we're complaining, right? We don't want to, we were sick of car, we were sick of horse and buggy, so we invented cars. And just, not there's anything wrong with cars, but what was wrong with horses? And I remember hearing about someone who was alive in the 1800s and saw all these things come to pass. And they were like, what was life like before then? And he's like, well, it was kind of the same and we were fine. We enjoyed having horses. And then all of a sudden the car came along. They didn't really know any better. And I bring that up because the world talking about the great reset wants us to not know any better. If we don't have access to information after a generation or two of not having air conditioning, not eating meat, eating bugs, we're going to think it's normal. And we're not going to clamor for the old days again because we don't even know the old days existed. But during this thousand times, I wonder what kind of innovation can happen under God's rule. What kind of good innovations would come about? Um, you know, uh, sin is still technically bound up in this time, right? It's not a new creation. It's still this creation under the weight of these things, under broken things, right? But when people innovate, it's not going to be out of greed. It's not going to be on the backs of slave labor. It's not going to be on, uh, in the lab doing an evil experiment. I think it, there would be good innovations. Uh, but that's just you know me thinking about what this time could be like. But also, God didn't want us to be in human-designed cities. He wanted people to fill the earth, spread out, and multiply, right? Uh, so I wonder how things will be the same. And again, I think this is just interesting to think about. What could this time actually be like? How wonderful society would be. The whole world for all of history, has been trying to make this utopia. They think they finally get it, and it's awful. Under man's rule, under Satan's rule, it's awful. But Jesus comes, and it's wonderful. And it's sad to see what happens when we see uh, chapter 20 next time. But it says that he treads the winepress of the fury and the wrath of God Almighty. Back to this point that this man on the horse is God's warrior. Yeah, there's Michael the archangel, head of the angels, but Jesus is... The Lord of God's armies, the Lord of hosts, right? Psalm 144, 1 and 2 says, David says, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Who made David a good warrior, a good soldier? God taught him. He didn't go to army camp. He was a shepherd. And then he was on the run and he killed Goliath. God taught him how to slay evil. My loving kindness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and the one whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me. David knew that any authority he had was because God was the one subduing the enemy. God was the one doing the battle. When they went out to battle without God's blessing, they lost. Why? Because they weren't really the ones fighting that battle. God was. And let us not forget that Jesus is a warrior of righteousness. And he's God's executor of judgment and wrath. If anyone can pull the guillotine on the world, if anyone has the right to bring about the death penalty, it's Jesus. And that this God we worship is perfect and holy 
in all of his ways. In every one of his ways. And we need to remember that. And on his robe, he has a, a name written. Uh, again, this is kind of an auction picture. If you again, think about this. He's got this robe covered in blood and it says King of Kings, Lord of Lords on it. Man, I really don't know why they don't make a really awesome movie. Just take it for what it is. Draw it out exactly the way it is. And it would be fantastic. Um, but just like a, a general might have medals or stars on their uniform to show their authority and their battles they've won. Make no mistake, though, with this robe and with these crowns and with these names, Jesus is in charge. He always has been. He is right now, whether they believe it or not. And he always will be forever. And let's go on and get through the rest of the chapter. It says, verse 17. I, John, saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice to all the birds flying in the midst of heaven, Come and gather for the supper of the great God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of strong men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And we'll stop there. Um, it says an angel standing in the sun. The commentary talks about this angel could be brighter than the sun because he's God's glory. He still can be seen despite the brightness of the sun. But I think that he's in front of this light source that gave light to all of earth, gave life in a sense to all of creation in a physical sense through all times. Why people worship the sun, right? It gave us warmth. It lets crops grow. Uh, but I believe that he's standing in front of this because he's declaring a new rule. That creation is no longer governed by creation anymore. That creation is being governed directly by the maker of creation. And it's interesting that he calls to the birds. If we remember, I think we looked at it last week, the dreams of Joseph that he interpreted, the birds coming and eating, I think it was the baker or the wine guy, but whoever was in on the plot to kill Pharaoh was the guy who had his eyes and everything plucked out by the birds when he was uh, killed. Uh, but the birds came. And birds in scripture, there's pictures of them being sinful and evil. And there's pictures of them being holy and right. And I think it's interesting that this angel calls out to all of creation and all the birds of creation to come and devour all the vultures, all the crows, every animal to come and eat and feast on something kind of gross. And in the commentary, uh, a guy named Erdman says, Armageddon is presented in a picture of almost repellent realism. That if you read this chapter and you can kind of skim through it and not really think about what it's actually saying. But if you sit down and think about it and go, there's an angel calling all these birds to eat the dead bodies of all these people who were sided with the Antichrist. It's kind of gross. But, that's what's going to happen. And in a sense, it's creation's reward, creation's relief from the tyranny of this uh, power that's been on earth. That there's a feast for us in heaven, thankfully it's not the dead bodies, right? We feast on Jesus, communion. We have a wonderful feast coming in heaven to see. But there's also a supper for creation to revel in. That they eat the flesh that's dead down there. That they eat what was wiped out by the sword of God's mouth. They can come and eat. God says he takes care of all the animals, right? But these folks were everybody. They were from every class, every nationality. In a sense, opposite of what the Bible says about who's in heaven. The Bible says that there's people of every tribe, nation, tongue in heaven who worship God, and there's obviously people of every tribe, nation, and tongue on earth who, again, like, how do you worship? What deceit to worship this, this person on earth? Um, but they're going to be devoured by God's command. God wiped them out, and even in God's command, he uses creation. Another commentary talks about the repetition of flesh. Five times is revealing that the race has walked in carnal enmity against God 
living after the flesh, and now the day of his patience is at an end, Barnhouse says. And um, Walver says, it also shows that men of all stations are judged, the high and the low together. If they remain hardened in their rejection of Jesus, they will be judged. The divine judgment upon the wicked is no respecter of persons or station and is the great equalizer of all. We're equal at the cross. We're equal in heaven as we saw last week. Don't worship me, John. Get up. I'm one of your fellow servants. The same thing in judgment. There's, there's, no, there's no buying your way out of heavenly judgment like people buy their way out of earthly judgment uh, now. Let's go on. 19 through 21 says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to wage war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. The remnant were slain with the sword which proceeded out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds gorge themselves with their flesh. And almost the sense there's like not enough birds to go around to eat all this. But it says the beasts and the kings of the earth and armies. And I think it's hilarious that anyone would think they could fight God at all, let alone win, even if they still had nuclear weapons, right? Like even if you brought all the, the armies of China and Russia and America together, you know, part of, again, just to touch on Ukraine, you know, Russia's loot... Is Russia losing or winning? We don't really know. But they're fighting the West. We're sending billions of dollars over there. We're sending rockets over there. And we're kind of like, ha-ha, Russia's losing. They can't beat the Ukraine. Well, it's because they're fighting all of us already. It's a proxy war with NATO right now. But imagine if they try to use those weapons against God. What, what like person in their sane mind would think that they could beat this eternal being who comes out of a portal out of space-time with a rocket, with a bullet, he invented the atom. Why would a nuclear bomb stop him? But it says that this beast was captured. Again, I like the imagery here. Just a couple of words. But the beast who's been going around the world, the Antichrist, he's grabbed by God's angels. He's captured here. Think of it as like the ultimate episode of Cops, uh, where he's handcuffed and he's resisting arrest and they're dragging him off, right? That this one who made many captives, they made his people spiritual slaves, is now a slave himself, is now captive himself. And you remember when they found Saddam Hussein, this strong dictator who killed people to whim, is hiding out with a beard in a spider-infested hole uh, in the ground in Iraq, right? But who were the first two to go into the lake of fire? Well, it's the beast and the false prophet. That Jesus, right away, Jesus got special things to deal with Satan, right? But right away, he's, he gets rid of these guys. I'm getting rid of this government. I'm getting rid of these people. And he cast them, these human instruments of Satan, into the lake of fire. Well, what is this lake of fire, right? Well, I don't want to get too much into a study on hell, especially when we're getting to the close of the message here. But if we look at this place, this is the final hell, if you could call it that, right? That if we look at Scripture, Scripture kind of talks about three different places. It talks about, uh, I believe it's called Gehenna in the Old Testament, along with Abraham's bosom. When we look in Luke 16, we see, um, uh, what's his name, Lazarus and the rich man. And it's not a parable. It's talking about this guy who dies and he's comforted in Abraham's bosom. That before Jesus came, in a sense, there were these two compartments. One of torment for those waiting judgment and one of comfort those awaiting the day of salvation to come. And I don't know how this all works in time, but this is what the Bible says. It says, the um, uh, Bible talks about being in the belly of the earth, like Jonah being in the belly of the whale. Jesus went down and preached uh, liberty to the captives. Um, is it physically in the center of the earth? 
I don't know. I would, I mean, I, I would lean towards that way, but who knows? Is it just a spiritual realm that somehow has ties to that center part of the earth? You know, if it could, if a physical realm, a spiritual realm could be plotted to a physical destination. But again, we don't really know what's in the earth. We don't know. We just know one thing though, that basically the continents, you know, for lack of a better scientific explanation are floating on a lake of fire. And I think that's interesting. But there is this final hell, a final lake of fire, that these two compartments, Abraham's bosom goes away, this other apartment remains until the judgment, then when the judgment comes, those are, everyone's resurrected, resurre resurrected to judgment, resurrected to judgment of rewards for believers, and for punishment for Anon, and then they go into the lake of fire in the end, which we'll see. But these are the first two that are cast in there. And we look at Mark 9, I won't read it all for time, 42 through 48, but Jesus talks about it. He says, if you remember, we talked about the millstone around someone's neck. It's better for them to be cast into a lake of fire than to cause these little ones to stumble. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, right, Ash? It's better to be maimed and enter into heaven, maimed, than hell whole. And the hell, the hell hole he's talking about here is this lake of fire, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, um, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, if we really get into it, it's kind of this weird picture that we look at. And uh, I saw this clip on YouTube. This uh, I'm not really into rap, but it's this Christian rapper. And he posted this short. And it was like a montage of a bunch of liberal type people flipping out on TikTok videos of themselves screaming and stuff. And he played them all at the same time in a row. And he said, multiply this times a million. And that's what hell sounds like. And it's kind of, kind of terrifying. But remember, hell was not created for man but for fallen angels and these people who were possessed by Satan and allied with him, that's who gets thrown alive into there. Uh, they don't, they don't get a death and it's not just a dead body. They don't exist anymore and they're burned up and they're not forgotten anymore. They go in alive and they will live for all eternity in hell that we live forever one way or the other. It's not like you just go to heaven and if you were bad, you just vaporize. No, you suffer forever. And remember, it's not Satan's kingdom, it's not his playground, it's not a party, it's absolute torment for everyone there. And God does not want anyone to perish, to die this way, the second death. But it says that many people were deceived of all nations, we'll see in chapter 20 that not everyone goes along with it, that there's several classes of society, those who take the mark don't resist, and, and martyrs, right? Uh, but the remnant and the rest of this army are destroyed by God. That these are the ones who took the mark, these are the ones who worshiped the beast, and these are the ones that are going to be cast into the lake of fire and whose bodies will be devoured. Uh, but again, they're killed by God, and God uses his creation to devour them. And again, if we look through all of Revelation, that's kind of there. God's calling out things to happen, and he uses his own creation to do it. The flood, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? There's spiritual things behind it, but God uses these things. The earthquake, the sun, and wild animals in Revelation 6.8. And Romans 18, 19, Romans 8, 19 through 22, as we close here, the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. The creation suffers because of sin. And in a sense, some, God is giving some relief to creation by allowing it to judge sin in this end time. We've seen heaven open. We've seen the lake of fire opened. 
And as we see these things, I think we should ask, why do we even have revelation? Well, I believe it's because God wants us to know him. I think it's evident in scripture. He wants us to know what's coming. Ultimately, judgment's coming first. He wants us to skip over that judgment. And he wants us to avoid it at all costs. In a sense, even giving away his final battle plan. Not that he could have lost. But he's giving it all away. It's all evident. It's all revealed that we might not perish. That we might not go to hell. That we might not die in the second death. Because Jesus took our judgment. Jesus became our sin of the cross. And because of these things, Revelation shouldn't scare us as believers. I think that's why we avoid it a lot. It shouldn't scare us, but like that imagery of Jesus coming out with the blood and the flaming eyes and the crowns and the names, it should sober us. It sobered me. It's what got me to, to turn to the Lord and repent, going, I know this is real, and I'm not prepared. First Peter, as we close, 13 through 16 and 23 through 25, 24 through 25 says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming themselves yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. We can't be ignorant anymore. We have the Bible. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower grass. The grass withers, the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. That God doesn't want us to perish. God wants us to know our days are short and they're numbered. And because he's holy, that's our motive to live holy. It's not for self-righteousness. It's not, I'm going to live holy that I might get to heaven. That's not how it works. We live holy because we're going to heaven. Because God is worthy. Because he is the faithful and true. Amen? And God, we thank you again for your word. We pray that you would come back soon. But in the same sense, we do also pray that you would delay it long enough that more people would come to know you as much as possible. Even some of those people in those videos that were put together in that montage that, God, they would turn to you and come to you. And God, if there's anyone listening uh, online or any of our friends who need to come to you, may they turn to you, may they trust you, and may they see uh, that you're holy and you're worthy because they see a smidgen of that in our lives as we follow you. And we love you, God. Bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. His love.